thewellnesscouch.com, streaming wellness into your life. Welcome to Wellness Women Radio for the women with big dreams who dare to be different and who want to thrive in health, work and play. Dr. Ashley Bond and Dr. Andrea Huddleston bring you a weekly podcast to help you master true health and create an exceptional life. Welcome, ladies. I hope you've been having a great week and we uh, certainly hope you've been having a week dedicated to yourself. What wonderful things have you been doing? Have you been looking at uh, your diet through the week? Have you been taking some time outside, getting some fresh air and sunshine? Or have you been just taking more time to just chill and relax and uh, and de-stress from your day-to-day busy life? We talk a lot about lifestyle factors and today's episode is certainly a topic that comes up uh, frequently and has some certain certain causative connections to our lifestyle and some of the things that we do eat and how we function. So welcome. I'm Ashley. And I'm Andrea. And we're the Wellness Women. Today's special topic is actually something that's very specific. um, And I think a lot of women who have heard this term before know exactly what it is because they're probably very well researched. And that is Hashimoto's thyroiditis. So Andrea, we're going to talk today about Hashimoto's disease um, because we've had a couple of questions of recent weeks where people ask specific questions about this. And it was really interesting because as practitioners, we can't give specific answers um, without, you know, one-to-one consultations. It's it's incredibly difficult to give a, a diagnosis um, over the internet. Oh, definitely. And for this one in particular, it's even more difficult. Um, I kind of put Hashimoto's almost into the same uh, category of difficulty to sort of diagnose and then address what the underlying causes are as something like PCOS or polycystic ovarian syndrome. It's kind of one of those conditions that can take a very, very long time to actually get to the root cause of or to get a proper clear diagnosis because our current level of testing is um, pretty inconsistent and and very flawed. And we'll go into why that's the case soon. Um, But it is a tricky condition. Um, The the term itself, Hashimoto's, was named after a Japanese doctor. It sounds like like a Japanese name um, back in the early 1912, I think it was, um, who was the first person to recognize the autoimmune component of hypothyroidism and when we say hypothyroidism we're talking about an underactive thyroid gland Um, if you go back to one of our much earlier episodes we were talking a lot about subclinical hypothyroidism um, and how prevalent that is and and some of the reasons for that but we're going to sort of tease out a little bit more of that today but specifically focus on Hashimoto's because in about 90% of cases of patients who do have an underactive or that hypothyroidism diagnosis, 90% of those cases is from an autoimmune condition and that is the Hashimoto's. Yeah, and of course, when we say thyroiditis, thyroiditis is classically what itis being inflammation. So thyroiditis, inflammation of the thyroid gland. And that occurs because of the autoimmune disorder in which the antibodies Mm -hmm. directly attack the thyroid gland tissue and they can lead to chronic inflammation. So a lot of people will have a myriad of symptoms and this is what makes it so challenging to diagnose because, well, one, there's general consensus that um, the medical profession, we don't understand completely why the body attacks itself, um, what creates that defensive mechanism that damages the thyroid gland. But essentially what they're looking for are a cocktail of different symptoms to try and find out whether or not that thyroid 
gland is functioning well. So some of the things that people classically will describe, they'll have things like fatigue and sluggishness, mm-hmm. certainly can have some issues such as depression or mental um, health concerns, constipation, pale dry skin, your hair loss, a lot of the classic signs of thyroid dysfunction. Um, interestingly, though, the misdiagnosis rate is so high because often they'll be treated for other things first. So you may be given an antidepressant instead of addressing the root cause of the problem, which could be the thyroid dysfunction. And it's interesting because there's such a strong link between thyroid function and and mental status as well. Um, And another symptom that seems to be quite distressing for so many people is the fact that when you have an underactive thyroid because of its strong regulatory action on our metabolism, weight gain is a, you know, an underlying symptom as well. But Ash, like what you said, it's such a vague, has such vague symptomatology because your thyroid gland affects pretty much anything from the top of your head right down to your toes. You know, there's receptors in every single cell of your body for thyroid hormones. So it can take such a broad spectrum. And if you sort of look at the symptom list that could be associated with some sort of thyroid conditions, almost everybody on the planet can go, oh, you know, I've had hair loss and dry skin and I'm exhausted and I have constipation bouts and I've got, you know, a really foggy head. Um, it's it's a tricky one to diagnose symptomatically because it is so completely vague. Um but it can be completely um, debilitating as well. And there's a lot of atypical presentations. I've had, I have a mm. couple of patients who've shown up with um, Hashimoto's and they're actually very much on the low body mass index. Um, they're looking at body fat index of, you know, 14 to 17% for a female, which is really low um, sure. in regards to the idea that this is supposed to cause weight gain. So no wonder they went under, underdiagnosed or undiagnosed for such a long period of time because symptomology, like their symptomology didn't match. It's like, well, hang on, you don't have a weight gain issue, so it can't be that. And it took them years to discover that it was actually this persistent, chronic and underlying issue. And uh, it certainly requires a very careful uh, look at the body from a biochemical perspective. And this is where we're mm-hmm. going to explain that a little bit further and working with the right professional to get to the underlying cause. Oh, I think that part's absolutely critical. Um, Just to put it into perspective as to how um, prevalent this condition is, um, studies back in 2010, so these are, you know, I guess old studies now, and I'm sure the numbers have changed, but from what I found was that about one in eight women um, are affected by Hashimoto's, which is pretty high numbers, but I'm also actually seeing a lot of men who are now presenting with this condition as well, which I I think is really interesting. Um, And hypothyroid conditions are now as prevalent as what are type 2 diabetes. So it's interesting that uh, such a um, pervasive lifestyle disease like type 2 diabetes um, is now comparable in numbers to, you know, an endocrine disorder, which I think also has very strong lifestyle factors involved in it um, or involved in some of the underlying causes of it as well. Let's so, talk about the important five stages because this is something okay. that um, I think, you know, on average it takes around 10 years to be diagnosed with Hashimoto's between the start and when someone has advanced enough symptoms and stage of that Hashimoto's presentation to actually get a diagnosis. Um, why is it, let's just quickly talk about why it is that conventional lab testing often doesn't show the problem soon enough. <laughs> oh, this is something that frustrates the hell out of me. And I'm just going to put it out there that our current testing standards and reference ranges for testing for thyroid health or function 
are so antiquated now and are based on um, a very sick bell curve is probably the best way I can describe it. So most conventional health practitioners will say if your TSH or your thyroid stimulating hormone is within normal reference ranges, then you're absolutely fine. And this is how sort of convoluted it is that it, it can take, you know, up to 10 years for that TSH to actually change enough to see the pathology on blood tests, but things can be happening in the background for such a long time. So just measuring your thyroid stimulating hormone is a very poor indicator of complete thyroid health. So what um, traditional practitioners will do is they will send you off for a TSH and their conventional teaching is that if your TSH is normal, then everything's going to be normal and they won't send you off for further testing after that. However, if your TSH is elevated, then they might do some investigation. Um, but even the reference range for your TSH, as far as I'm concerned, is far too broad. And we went into this in, in the previous podcast where we talked about it. But in Australia um, and in the US as well, the reference ranges for a normal TSH is between 0.5 to 5.0. Um, and this was actually based on a sample of patients that they took. They tested the thyroid stimulating hormone on all of these people and they did not exclude anyone with pre-existing thyroid conditions in that reference range. So this reference range itself is not even based on a healthy population. So when we're talking about a healthy TSH, in functional medicine, we consider between 0.3 to 0.5, which is the lower reference range, up to a maximum of 1.5. So anything over that is elevated or indicative of an underactive thyroid, which should warrant further investigation. But people can go years and years and years without you know, even knowing that that is the case. I saw a patient recently who had nine years of blood test results of their TSH, which were all elevated, but under that 5.0. And they've shown them to so many different practitioners and everyone said it's absolutely fine. And I, it was so frustrating for them because I looked at it and said, you, there's something going on with your thyroid and it's been happening for nine years and no one's picked it up because no one's been qualified to actually talk to you about this. Um, and I think that is the frustration for so many people. Okay, so that's the TSH, uh, and we'll we'll cross that off the list now. Now let's look at what the actual five stages of Hashimoto's are, and why it can be really really difficult to diagnose. So, stage one is kind of like your trigger phase. So this might be something that's triggering a change to happen within your immune system. So it might be that you have a genetic predisposition to some sort of autoimmune condition. It might be an environmental trigger. It might be a really stressful event. So there's some kind of trigger that sparks this off in the first place. Then the second phase is what we call the immune cell infiltration of the thyroid gland. So we know that Hashimoto's is an autoimmune condition, which means that your own immune system is recognizing your thyroid tissue as being a foreign invader or a pathogen, and it's actually attacking that. Um, and so this in that second phase is when the white blood cells start to infiltrate the thyroid gland to affect it. Um, in this second phase, um, a lot of people will actually have elevated thyroid antibodies. Um, so up to sort of 80 to 90% of them will have elevated antibodies, but they will have a normal TSH and your free T3 and T4 will still be normal at this stage as well. 
So if that's what you're testing, if you're testing your TSH and you're not looking at antibodies, they can still be completely normal, even though that immune response is already happening. Yeah, and sadly, this is not the stage most people are diagnosed in. This sounds like your nine years uh, patient, which yeah. has been sort of stuck in this window. And uh, unfortunately, this is a time where the most powerful changes can occur if we can make some lifestyle interventions, if you can get step in there and reduce that antibody elevation to start to reduce that uh, white cell infiltration, get the get the understanding of what's actually triggering it and reduce that, then you can actually prevent moving towards stages three, four, and five. So, yeah, uh, exactly. you know, unfortunately, this is the most critical stage to identify the issue, but often this is the one that's the, the hardest to determine where, whether this is Hashimoto's or something else going on. Yeah, exactly. So unless you're actually testing antibodies, you're not going to know at that stage. Um, There's stage- also we can also be using uh, obviously ultrasound as well. They can be yeah. checking, yeah. you know, having a look at the uh, thyroid itself because sometimes blood tests can show normal, 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 um, and yet if you can get in there and have a little look at this, the actual gland, then you may see that infiltration issue, and that's a, an affirmative of the thyroiditis. Yeah, yeah, there might be some sort of um, goiter present. There might be some swelling and, and those sorts of things too, or some nodulation of the thyroid as well. Yeah. Um, and if you miss that stage, unfortunately, then we're moving into stage three, which is that sort of subclinical hypothyroidism. And that's, uh, yeah, that's when things start to go pretty awry for people. That's when the symptoms start to show up. Yeah, but again, it may not be picked up by conventional medical testing because your TSH might be only slightly elevated, which might fall within, again, conventional medicine reference ranges. Um, And your T3 and T4, your free T3 and T4, I should say, might still be normal at this stage. But this is already quite far down the chain. You're already having the immune system response. You're already having um, symptoms of an underactive thyroid. So your pituitary gland is responding to that. And then you're progressing to stage four, which is overt hypothyroidism. Um, So by this stage, your TSH levels are absolutely elevated. Your free T3 and T4 are typically low. And of course, your antibodies are going to be very, very high. So this is typically the stage when diagnosis is made. And on average, it takes about nine years to get to this stage of diagnosis, which is horrendous. And by this stage, this is the medications. This is yeah. when uh, typically conventional physicians are going to jump in there and you will absolutely be put on to thyroid medication um, because they're going to try and regulate those elevations to limit the damage to your body. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And then stage five is when you have the full-blown autoimmune condition. Um, and once you're at this point, this is when you're at a much higher risk of developing further autoimmune conditions as well, because uh, within uh, medicine, if you have one, then it typically predisposes you to or increase your risks of other autoimmune conditions as well. Um, and this is when typically they'll say things like you will be on the medication for the rest of your life. Um, and, you know, it's, it's it's a lot harder to change, but certainly not impossible either. Yeah, and once your immune system has flagged one uh, organ to attack, that's when uh, you said many organs could be attacked. This is where other sort of co coexisting concerns will start to show up, and they can be things like celiac disease or um, inflammatory psoriasis, rheumatoid arthritis, lupus, and uh, many other different inflammatory conditions. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Um, so life isn't very fun once you get to stage five. No, and sometimes there as well, they're in for surgery, removing the thyroid itself. Uh, mm-hmm. That's, uh, you know, a horrendous thing. And unfortunately, 
what the science says is that's not going to stop the disease itself. Um, it certainly stops the antibodies attacking the thyroid gland, but it doesn't mean they're not going to go on and attack other tissues and organs. So it's uh, it's not the fix to, to medicate. It's not the fix to remove, eliminate, cut out. Mm-hmm. Um, what we're looking for are ways to help one, identify soon so you can work into a prevention aspect and two if you have been diagnosed what is actually in your control what do you actually have some degree of uh, influence over because once you've developed into a full-blown autoimmune condition then of course the long-term prognosis is one you're going to have to manage for the rest of your life you're going to have to be mindful of the lifestyle conditions and and parameters you need to live with to make sure that you don't have uh, constant and chronic inflammation you can actually have periods of remission and that's what a lot of people who say they they're well managing you know they'll say they're managing their condition well because they know that there's things they do which will create a dormancy create a uh, a Mm -hmm. time in which they're not experiencing significant problems but if they throw it all out the window have some benders go binging ignore their you know good lifestyle habits unfortunately they get a full-blown you know activation of the condition again so yeah we uh i think we we definitely hope we can help you identify things sooner than later but of course, I know that some of our listeners are going to be there and they're already in the uh, stage five. Um, Ash, I love what you said about um, we're going to help you with some things that are within your control because I think that so many people, once they get to that stage five, then it's, you know, this is when you're seeing your endocrinologist, this is when you put on thyroxine and steroids and maybe a whole bunch of other things um, to suppress the immune system response, but to stimulate some sort of thyroid function, which can exacerbate the problem in the first place. Um it's a very passive process. So it sort of rules out any kind of control that you might have. And it's really interesting that if you listen to a lot of the um, very popularized functional health practitioners nowadays, a lot of them have actually come from a history of some sort of thyroid condition. Um, Because if you sort of look at their history and, you know, they might have had very stressful jobs or lifestyles, they might have been conventional GPs or, you know, emergency physicians who had very high stress, very high pressure jobs. Um, Things were happening below the surface of their system that then, you know, manifested as some kind of thyroid condition. And then conventional medicine said to them, we can't help you except for putting you on thyroxine or taking it out in the first place. And that is just not good enough for them. And so this is how a lot of the functional health practitioners have actually come to, you know, being successful in what they do because they had to learn the hard way how their body actually works and functions. And there's not a lot of answers within conventional medicine when it comes to thyroid health. Um, so there is a lot that is in your control. There is a lot that you can do to, you know, help to bring your um, autoimmune markers down and to, um, you know, also control that immune response. It is a very complicated sort of multifactorial system, though, because you're working with your thyroid gland, which is very much influenced by your gut health, by your immune system, and also by your adrenals. And I have a saying that your thyroid is a slave to your adrenal glands. And it's not surprisingly that a lot of these things happen after chronic or or acute stress. Yeah, and that's that exacerbating event, isn't it? That's when uh, inflammation gets out of control because you've got that adrenal hyperactivity and, uh, of course, the cascade effect, you know, biochemically, it then starts to to nail your uh, your thyroid as well. So it's... I think it's the good thing is there's there's things that you do have control over and primarily those things are the lifestyle factors. The big one is dietary 
and and to take control control of the dietary component of this condition then you're really missing the mark and I, I had to say that but i think that if someone is relying on medication alone they're not doing enough they're not taking responsibility for the situation and um, it can be really hard to hear that i know that i certainly had that conversation with one of my patients and she was reliant upon the medication and she felt as though that that's the only option she had and we had a chat about her food intakes her general mm-hmm. lifestyle patterns and she just wasn't doing the work need to be done. And so yeah. her frustrations with her ups and downs and bouts of, you know, deep and heavy fatigue, she was responsible in a big part for those experiences because she hadn't taken control of the diet. She wasn't doing what it took. Mm-hmm. And so we had that hard conversation. Um, it was confronting for her because I don't think someone had said to her, hey, you are responsible for this. It's not happening to you. You are doing this. And mm-hmm. she'd been told that it was a condition over which she had no control. She was on medication for the rest of her life. And um, and I, we recommended that she read a few books, you know, bring up some, I guess, context, some knowledge in the area. She'd done a lot of research, but a lot of the online research kept pointing her back to the medication. Once she was on the medication, that was the sort of end of her control. And, yeah. and that's when, uh, you know, both you and I have read this work, but that's when I jumped into the work of Illabella sorry say that again Isabella Wentz Wentz. and that's when she started to go oh like oh so there's more that I can do and yeah it was it was a wonderful moment when she realized that um you know from being I guess feeling a bit persecuted by my accusation that she she hadn't been doing the work to empowerment and knowledge um it was really exciting to watch her transition and one of the biggest things she did was cut out gluten Yeah. Oh, big time. And I think that if we leave you with nothing else today, if you change nothing else except for, you know, this one thing that you're eating, and if that's gluten, then, you know, this is a very successful podcast. And I know we harp on about this all the time. Um, And if you haven't got the idea yet that gluten may not be that good for you, then hopefully you will after this. But there's some very, very solid science that correlates gluten sensitivity and celiac disease with poor thyroid function and specifically hypothyroidism and Hashimoto's um, thyroiditis as well. Um, So in particular, there was a study that um, found that most people with subclinical hypothyroidism, if placed on a gluten-free diet, um, found that their thyroid function actually normalized. So 71% of people who followed a strict one-year gluten-free trial um, had complete uh, recovery of their intestinal mucosal um, lining, so complete healing of their gut, which they used as a marker as well, as well as normalization of their thyroid function. How amazing is that? Fantastic. 71% of people with one year avoiding gluten. And there's a reason for that. And the reason is that um, there's a there's a cross-reaction of the proteins in gluten that mimic certain things that then alerts the immune system to it, that then kind of creates this, I, I guess, haywire um, effect of the, the immune system. Um, it's it's really, really interesting. Um, there's so much compelling research um, that relates to this and uh, the gluten sensitivity um, and the relationship with Hashimoto's is depending on what, which source that you read. So, for example, there was in 2007, there was a Dutch study that found 15% um, of people with Hashimoto's also had celiac disease. Mm-hmm. Now, we also know that the testing protocol for celiac disease is completely insensitive 
So <laughs> you might be tested a whole bunch of times um, for cilia and it might always come up as negative, but you may have an intolerance. Yeah, so, amazing, isn't it? So, yeah, so, again, example of those uh, coexisting concerns celiac mm-hmm. and hypothyroid i i mean you talked about there a study andrea of that was one year without gluten yeah yeah yeah, yeah. so i read one as well and that was 21 days only okay so yeah that's amazing yeah italian study 21 days they took a, a large group of people they put them through a change in diet there's 180 people with hashimoto's diagnosed and they found that after just 21 days, there were huge decreases in the levels of thyroid antibodies. And it just shows you how aggressive the body attacks itself in the presence of inflammatory foods. And so they, they found that, you know, things like the TG antibodies dropped by 40% on average. That's just substantial. So if we don't get this idea across that you have control through diet, then I'm sorry we've missed a mark on this episode today because this was phenomenal. And when you look at that and you realize like, okay, so what does, uh, what does a, uh, a Hashimoto's diet look like? I mean, a lot of people will say, well, okay, if I'm not eating gluten, great, but is there anything else? And specifically, I mean, you're essentially looking at a paleo style lifestyle, isn't it? I think it's so interesting that it crosses over. The recommendations are really quite simple in this particular study. 15 to 20, sorry, 15% carbohydrate, 60% protein, roughly 30% fats. Okay. Um, so it's a low carb style diet. It's veggie rich. So they had to eat mm-hmm. as many leafy greens as they could, but they did have to exclude goitrogens. Okay. So these are some of the foods that what they call goitrogenic uh, have an activation effect on the thyroid. So they did exclude a few of vegetables, um, things like, well, cabbage, turnip, watercress, radish and horseradish. There was a few things there, soy, spinach. Do I, yeah. So these were, <laughs> these were interesting and I thought that was, that was cool. So they excluded a few things and then they were told to eat meat, you know, eat the lean parts of red and white meat and some fish. It's pretty simple. Yeah, really um, straightforward. They had to eliminate yeah. breads, pastas, fruit juice, rice, um, eggs and legumes, okay, for that period. But this is just 21 days and a 40% reduction. So I think if if you realise that what you could do in such a short time is so profound and such a big element of change, imagine what you can do if you really change your lifestyle and make this part of your, your living, part of the way you are. And I think particularly in our current lifestyle when, you know, you see ads for like seven days till your six-pack abs or three <laughs> days to lose like 10 kilos or whatever it is, I think 21 days sounds a little bit more reasonable to people than than one year. But just remember, if it can take an average of nine years to get diagnosed with this, mm-hmm. then it's going to be some time for your body to actually re-regulate after that. And you've got to change some things for it to actually do that. Um so I like what you described there, Ash. It's like the, you know, the autoimmune paleo type um, diet. And we'll certainly give you some references for that online. Um, it's funny. People sort of will pick their side of the fence when it comes to, to gluten. Um, I remember a couple of weeks ago, I was having brekkie at a cafe here in Perth. Um, and there was a woman sitting at the table next to me who was like vehemently detesting the idea of avoiding gluten if you're not a celiac. Um, and so she sat there and went on very loudly and obnoxiously, I might add as well, um, that how dangerous it is to exclude gluten from your diet if um, you're not a celiac. And here I was just trying to enjoy my breakfast with my dog um, and <laughs> listening to this, like, you know, very uh, misguided, passionate woman. It was 
pretty annoying actually. But um, this is a lot of people's take on it, right? Because we're led to believe that gluten, um, if you exclude it from your diet, it's really dangerous. And I would love to see some compelling studies on that. I haven't found any to date that show that avoiding gluten is dangerous for your health. Um, it also disregards the fact that a lot of people have non-celiac gluten sensitivity. And it also disregards the fact that the celiac testing is so completely insensitive. Um, so we know that there is absolutely no health benefits whatsoever to eating gluten. Um, so I think that uh, I would love to see some studies on that if that was the case. And look, the other trigger, I mean, it's known stress alone can trigger Hashimoto's. So another big component is to look at stress modulation, stress regulation. So um, for me, it's always diet and stress. Get those things under control first because they're, they're things you do have absolute influence over. Um, I recently was really interested. I was just sort of rereading a book on um, chakra healing and chakra therapy. And of course, that's, you know, some people that's a stretch and that's totally understandable. But we do know that mind affects body and body affects mind and spirits all intertwined in there and there's a mind body autoimmune connection and so i was reading the work of um uh, dr richard shames he's an author of a book um called thyroid power and he talks a lot about this mind body healing for the thyroid because the thyroid gland itself corresponds with the fifth chakra for anyone who's done work on this and this is our throat chakra and interestingly it sits between our fourth and sixth which is our heart and our head so, you know, it's all about effective communication, where in which are you feeling conflict between head and heart? Where do you feel disempowered? Where you're not able to um, speak your truth, speak your mind, communicate clearly and effectively. And I thought that was really, really interesting because uh, not only do we have to work on the, the physical side of the health, such as through diet, but we do need to work on the mental side of our health too, which directly influences how our body works. Oh, I love that. Yeah. And you know what? There's so many layers to this. I think that's really nice and just something to, to think about as well. Um, one thing that I, I don't think we preface this with, but this is going to be a multi-part episode. Um, so today we're just introducing you to the idea of what is Hashimoto's, um, that there is so many stages to it and it's pretty tricky to diagnose. Um, but we're going to leave you with a couple of things as well. Um, in the, the subsequent episodes that we're going to do on this, we're, we're going to get some industry leaders in, um, you know, particularly in Hashimoto's on to, to talk to you about what they've found in their experience has been really beneficial. Um, and that will also cover some of the medication options as well, including your glandulars or your, your desiccated thyroids, um, potentially things like low-dose naltrexone and other things. So we'll have someone on who can talk about those sorts of things. Um, but let, let's just talk about some testing that you can do if this is questionable for you, um, because this is a place to start. You can seek out your functional health practitioner who can help you with this. So you definitely, one, obviously you want to be looking at your TSH, your thyroid-stimulating hormone. You need to have your TPO, all right, which is um, one of your uh, autoantibodies checked, which is your thyroid peroxidase um, antibodies, as well as your thyroglobulin antibodies, which is the TG test. You also want to check your free T3 and T4 and your reverse T3 and T4. That is bare minimum testing as far as I'm concerned. Um, and an ultrasound, I think, is also very beneficial too. So write down those tests, take that list along to your GP um, or, you know, better yet, your functional health practitioner. Um, and that and avoiding gluten is a really good place to start.
Oh, absolutely. Um, and I think it's um, it, it's hard because, well, any medical profession, no one likes to be told what to do. So if someone comes in and tells me what their problem is and how they want it fixed, um, I, you often feel a little bit confronted. It's okay. <laughs> so to go in there gently and just ask the questions. But we have a, a strategy that I generally apply to all my clients. Look, if in doubt, rule it out. So, you know, if you have any concerns, um, that is even a statement you can say, look, I there's doubt I'd like to rule it out. Uh, mm-hmm. I'm not convinced that this may not be, you know, some part of the problem. I'd like to know for sure. And that just means that you need to run all those tests. Otherwise, you can't possibly know. You miss a couple of them and guess what? You're only getting part of the picture. It's like having pieces of the puzzle and only getting half of it and not really seeing the whole frame. So you do need to get the uh, the full spectrum done so you have a better understanding. And then from there, assessing that correctly and not being dismissive because we've already talked about how some of those bell curve normals can be quite different for each person. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so ladies, we would love to hear what your experience is possibly with your own thyroid health as well, because almost every woman I know has some kind of experience with or know, know someone who has, because it is becoming so um, so common these days, which is pretty sad, but I think also a reflection of our lifestyle and our stresses as well. So we would love to hear from you. Make sure you're communicating with us on Facebook, which is facebook.com forward slash the wellness women. Um, let us know what you thought of this episode. Please leave your comments comments on iTunes as well. Make sure you've subscribed to um, Wellness Women Radio so that you get the download every week uh, and give us a five-star rating if you think that we deserve it. Um, you can follow us on Instagram as well, which is underscore the Wellness Women. Uh, and ladies, until next week, be well. This has been a production of thewellnesscouch.com. Check us out on Facebook and join in the conversation on facebook.com forward slash thewellnesscouch. Subscribe to each show on iTunes and check us out on Twitter. The Wellness Couch, streaming wellness into your lives. Whilst the Wellness Couch presenter endeavor to provide accurate and helpful information to their listeners, these podcasts cannot take into account individual circumstances and are not intended to be a substitute for health and medical advice from a qualified health professional. You should always seek the advice of a qualified health professional before acting on any of the information provided by any of the Wellness Couch podcasts.